Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. I just want to invite you at this time to grab a Bible. Of course, um, you can look this up on your phone or you can look this up on your computer. Uh, We are turning this morning to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32 this morning. We're continuing our fall sermon series. Um, We're calling it Resolute, Tenacious Faith for Tumultuous Times. And these are tumultuous times, but it helps us to know that this is actually nothing new. The Apostle Peter said 2,000 years ago, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. At Hope, we want to say the same thing. Do not be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. Tumult, in other words, is not the exception for God's people. It is the norm for God's people. And so the question for hope this season is not, will we go through hard times? But it is, how can we hang on to God and to his promises with a tenacity in these certain tumultuous times. And so to help us answer this question, we're looking at God's people throughout redemptive history. And last week, Aaron uh, showed us how to hang on to God when we are struck by shocking and unexpected news. This week, we are going to look how to hang on to God while we're waiting for God uh, to show up and to, and to really move. And isn't that our struggle right now? Uh, we are in a waiting season. And so it's hard to keep leaning in to God and to his promises when God seems so silent, when God seems so distant. And so what I want to do is read the first 14 verses of Exodus 32. You can follow along. I'll read out loud. We'll pray and we'll ask God to show up. This is the word of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that's in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people. So Moses is meeting with the Lord on Sinai. Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation 
of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, quote, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Lord, May my words and may the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, empower my preaching and soften our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Well, last week I took my two older boys mountain biking in the winding trails of West Virginia. And we rented these amazing fat tire bikes that we don't have. And as soon as we got these amazing bikes, uh, my oldest basically took off. And the whole day, me and his younger brother were basically playing catch up with my oldest. And this was mostly great, but there were stretches of this trail that made my stomach sink. My oldest was so far ahead of us that minutes would pass by before we would see him again. Which is fine, I mean, if we were riding in my neighborhood. Uh, But when there's a hundred foot drop off to your right, and when you're in the middle of this forest uh, with no cell coverage, miles away from civilization, uh, it's not so fine. And like I said, minutes would go by before I would catch up to him. And likely it was seconds, but it felt like minutes, and it felt like hours even. Uh, And in that time that I couldn't see him, in that space... I devised all the worst case scenarios in my head. He hit a boulder. He fell off the ledge. He got kidnapped. He, he's on the wrong trail. He went this way instead of that way. I pictured a search team. I pictured us having to wait at the trailhead and just hoping and waiting for him to show up. See, waiting, even if it's seconds, is really hard. We're not talking about an Amazon package here. Waiting is hard, especially with someone you love. And I think we all can probably relate to my story. I'm sure we have stories of waiting when panic and worst case scenario thinking came rushing in. Uh, maybe it was like me, you were waiting for a child to return from school or from a, a bike ride. Or maybe it was a test result that you're waiting for. A test result from school. Or maybe a test result from the hospital. We panic We take matters into our own hands. This is happening a lot during this pandemic. Uh, The pandemic, if nothing else, is a waiting season. We're all waiting, and we don't have much to go off of. We hang on every piece of news that offers some kind of relief to what we're going through right now. The National Center for Health Statistics says that one in three Americans are dealing with symptoms of stress and anxiety. Many noticed and took heart when Michelle Obama admitted that she is struggling in her mental health during this season with all that's going on in our country. I learned this week from the Christian neuroscientist and therapist Kurt Thompson 
that grief is magnetic. What he means is that when our body, when we allow ourselves to grieve loss, all the past griefs that we have been suppressing so well finally get an invitation to the grief party. And so for many of us, we're not only grieving things present, but we are also grieving whatever else we skillfully avoided our entire lives. In times of stress and anxiety and, yes, grief, I think we're very vulnerable spiritually, too. I mean, we just read Exodus 32, and I actually have a lot of sympathy for God's people in Exodus 32. I don't read this passage and think, oh man, what a bunch of idiots, like worshiping a golden calf after all that God has done. Now, I'm not excusing what they did. Obviously, God doesn't either. But in my sin, I can understand, I can put myself there. And I can understand why they did what they did. If you think about it, they are two things. They're insecure and they're uncertain. They're insecure in the desert of Sinai. They encountered battle, food and water uh, shortage, as we've read about. And now they're without their leader, Moses. They're also uncertain in this desert of Sinai because they have no certain path forward. Moses, think about it, was with them every single day offering strong leadership up to this point. And he's now up in the mountain, and they don't know how long. We know it's like 40 days and 40 nights. We know this. They don't know this. And so think about how unnerving that would be. 40 days is a really long time. And they had no idea what happened to him. So just imagine if we were, let's say we were climbing Everest. This is on your life list. You want to climb Everest. And you have a guide who's, who's taking you there. And then what if you're at base camp and that guide goes up a little bit to the next base camp and 40 days pass and you don't see that guide again? What are you doing? You're panicking. You're thinking worst case scenario. Of course you are. And so as a sinner me, and as a worst case scenario thinker, me, and as a chronic overreactor, me, I sort of understand what happens when Moses was gone. Let's just say I can relate to their response. And what was their response? Three things, and I'm going to walk through their response, and I want you, more importantly, to consider ways that you've seen these patterns in your own life during this season of life, the past six months. The first thing they do is they get reactive. They react. Therapists make a distinction between receptivity and reactivity. Receptivity is when we're in the calm frontal lobe of our brain. Reactivity is when we're in that fight, flight, freeze, walnut part of our brain. God's people in verses 1 through 6 are in a reactive space. Verse 1 says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now, that's super generous, that translation. Because it's better to say, in the Hebrew, it's better to say the people gathered against Aaron. In fact, in the Hebrew, that phrase there is almost always implying hostility and pressure. Aaron was pressured. The people gathered against Aaron. And because Aaron probably had his own idols of popularity, he caved in. We do this too, don't we? In times of stress, the idols of our heart are exposed. We lose our principles under stress. And the things we really love, the things that we really are hoping in, the things that we are really, really obeying in order to get their blessing, these idols, these 
false gods, they, they sort of rise to the surface, don't they? And like the people of God, we become reactive. We lose perspective. We forget the promises of God. And we can gather against others. And we can gather against God himself. The second thing they are is they revert. So they react and they revert. Old Testament scholar D.K. Stewart says, Old habits and ways of thinking die hard. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Old habits and ways of thinking die hard. In times of stress, people revert to them even though they are useless and destructive. So think about this. God's people had been in Egypt for hundreds of years. And so it's no accident that they chose a calf because in Egypt, the young bull was a symbol of strength and power. This is the Egyptian way. And so even though they had been saved by Yahweh, even though Yahweh had shown his presence to him, their old wiring came through in this time of stress and of uncertainty. Don't we do this too? We revert back. I remember uh, returning home in my college years after I freshly encountered the Lord and his power in college and on campus. And when I came home from campus, I reverted back all the way to my old ways. I became what my mentor in college called a functional atheist. After I'd encountered the Lord, experienced his grace, his mercy, his power, his presence, the surety of his word, I go home and I revert back. Maybe that's happening now to you in surprising ways. They revert. And then third, they recast. They recast. In their stress, they recast God. God revealed himself one way, and they recasted him or reimagined him another way. Notice, this isn't really a rejection of Yahweh or God. It's a recasting of him. This isn't a new God so much as a reimagining of God in terms that they can imagine and in terms that they can, more importantly, control. This isn't rank idolatry, but something more subtle. They made God controllable and they made God on their own terms. John Stark, pastor and author, writes, I can imagine their own thinking. The God of Moses seems to do strange things at his own pace and on his own terms. We need a God who works for us. We can put up a lot of dissatisfaction with our idols so long as they're working on our terms. This insight prompted my desire to study and actually preach this passage. Because Stark makes this brilliant point that the God of Moses seems to do as he pleases and on his own timeline. And we don't want that. We want to do what we please. So we recast God. And maybe the reason we're reimagining God is so that when we feel like God is, is, is not obeying our terms, we can, we, can sort of re- we can settle with it. This is tempting always. But it's especially tempting during stressful times today. We don't like God's timeline. We don't like God telling us what to do. And so we refashion him. We create what one pastor calls a Stepford God. The Stepford wives were robots designed by men to do their bidding. Ugly, really ugly. But we do that with God, don't we? We redesign God to do our bidding. 
And so they became reactive, so do we. They became uh, reverting, so do we. And they recast God, so do we. But how does that work out for them? Well, verses 8 through 10 tell us uh, pretty plainly, not very well. Three things to notice in these verses. First thing is that this kind of idolatry offends God. Read verse 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Referencing the Ten Commandments. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They're attributing to this golden calf what the Lord himself did so plainly. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Why? To start over with my rescue mission plan, creating a people for my purpose to, to spread my vision and my mission to save the world. He wants to start over. Why? Because idolatry offends God. Idolatry is when we accuse God of not being good enough, wise enough, fast enough, any enough. And like Israel, we keep what we like about God, we scrap what we don't like about God, but this offends God because it attributes to others what God is and what God has done. Every time I get a thoughtful gift during a holiday, I am tempted and often do return it. And this is because it's always not exactly what I wanted. Can you relate? You know what I mean? Like you get a gift and you're grateful for the gift, but it's not exactly what you wanted. And so often I return it and I happen to know from painful experience that this offends the giver. It drives him crazy. How much more with God? He offers the gift of salvation. He offers the gift of revelation. He, he bends down. As, as John Calvin says, he speaks baby talk to his people to reveal himself to us. He gives us all these gifts. He gives us the gift of the law. He gives us the gift of his law. And we say, no thanks. I'll tweak it so that your gift fits my preferences entirely. I'll return it to get something that I really want. Idolatry offends. Second, though, we see that God's reaction here shows us that idolatry not only offends God, but it actually corrupts his people. It corrupts us. He says this outright in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So idolatry would be bad enough if it only offended God. But here we see, and we know from experience, that idolatry corrupts us. It makes us less than we are made to be. We are designed by God to worship God, to find our joy, to find our rest, to find our peace, to find everything in the Lord. As Pascal said, we all have vacuums that can only be filled by God. Or as Koholeth says in, in, in Ecclesiastes, we were made for eternity. We were made for God. And so anything that we try to fill that isn't God, that vacuum, we are, in a, in a way, drinking and eating poisonous food. It may look good, but it's not good. It, it poisons us. It corrupts us. I mean, first of all, it makes us look foolish. If we, if we go back to the text here, the Israelites, they wanted a God to go before us. That phrasing, to go before us, is exactly what God had been doing for them day in and day out. You can look at Exodus 13, verse 21, where you see that exact phrase. And they want that through this idol. 
And as scholar T.D. Alexander puts it, in light of the preceding chapters, which if you were to just flip through the preceding chapters of Exodus, you're getting tabernacle instructions. And what's tabernacle? Tabernacle is the house of God. It's God dwelling and moving into our neighborhood and giving us every single possible means to dwell close to a sinful people with the sacrificial system, with everything. God is essentially saying with the tabernacle, I want to be near you. This is exactly how you can be assured that I'm near you, even in your sin. And then we, not to mention the fire by night, the cloud by day, the parting of the sea, the decisive victory over Egypt and Egypt's gods. And all of that, they they take to a small golden calf. It makes us look foolish. It corrupts us. Second, though, we know idols don't ultimately work. Israel knew that the Egyptian gods were not real. The plagues decisively demonstrated that. In fact, the plagues, it could be argued, was God, in a sense, saying, victory over this, victory over that, victory over that, and pointing out to specific gods of Egypt and how Yahweh stands over all of that. And they experienced it, but they returned to them anyway. And third, we are dehumanized by idolatry. A truth is, and truth in the Bible, we can look into it if we had more time, is that we become who or what we worship. And so if we worship the living God, we grow in glory, we grow uh, in beauty, in truth, in justice, we grow in mercy. If we worship money, we start to look like money. Lifeless, dead, transactional, shallow, often abusive. If we worship a golden calf, we start to look like that. This scene of them sort of engaging in this, uh, this time of, 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 of worship, as it were, is, is a, it's a sad sh- shadow of what God was calling them to. It's a dehumanizing event in God's people. Now, Let me just say, across our world and even across our country, idolatry like we see here does exist. Sometimes, though, it's more hidden. Idolatry can be anything we look to, um, anything that we look to for what only God can provide. As it's been said, idolatry is making good things often ultimate things. It's making anything ultimate, but often those anythings are good things. It's It's giving a created thing creator status. It's when we diminish God or reimagine God, not according to his revealed word, but according to our own preferences. I call this MCL faith, MCL. At MCL, uh, you, which I don't know what MCL really stands for. I just know it's a cafeteria. And you walk in and you grab your tray and you pick your meal. Now compare MCL to Nancy's Diner on High Street. Have you been to Nancy's Diner on High Street? If you have, you know what I'm talking about. At least back in the day, at Nancy's, you walked in with your $5 bill, and there was only one thing on the menu. Whatever Nancy was cooking is what you were eating. And so that is, in my mind, a contrast to MCL. At Nancy's on High Street, you had one meal. At MCL, you can sort of just pick and choose what your meal is. See, God is like Nancy's Diner. (laughs) He is who he reveals himself to be. T.D. Alexander, again, he says, the book of Exodus emphasizes the importance of knowing God as he truly is and not as we imagine him to be. In other words, when it comes to God, we don't get a vote. It'd be a problem if Nancy's Diner tasted bad. Of course, we have a promise and we have through experience that God's word is life. 
We don't get a vote, but gratefully, he's a good king. In aligning ourselves with him and his purposes, Jesus assures us is life abundant. Eating at MCL feels good because you're picking your own meal, but if you've ever gone home from MCL or any cafeteria, it doesn't really sit well. It can be disastrous, and when we're talking about idolatry, it can be poisonous eternally. Let me encourage you now to do an idolatry inventory. How has the stress of these days tempted you to reimagine God? Or have there been good things in life that have become ultimate in your life these days? Do an inventory. Just notice them. And when you notice them, repent on that level. So often we repent on the surface and we repent of surface sins that our, that our idolatry is really feeding. And so we repent of, let's say, lying. But sometimes our idols are what is feeding our lying attitude. And so if we repent of lying every day, as it's been said, and never addressing maybe the, the idol of people-pleasing that lies underneath it, then this is just going to continually resurface. But if we do an inventory of our idols and we repent of those idols, then the lying loses its power. Do you see? Idols corrupt us. Let's turn to the living God. And the third thing we see in this passage is that, is that uh, from Moses' response is that idolatry demands. In verses 11 through 14, in Moses' response to God, we see that idolatry demands first judgment. God says he wants to destroy and start all over again. And just read on in places like verse 28 and verse 35 of our chapter to see how sin always requires judgment. The purpose of Exodus really is to open our eyes to the reality that God is God and we are not. And, 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 and sin requires judgment and God cannot overlook sin. But second, we learn from this passage that idolatry demands intercession. In verses 11 through 14, Moses intercedes. In fact, it seems as if God is inviting the intercession of, G, uh, of Moses. And the intercession of Moses is actually pretty incredible because he puts the people of Israel ahead of himself. In fact, later, if you were to read on at 32, Moses says, blot me out, blot me out so that you can indeed keep God's people. He puts Israel ahead of himself. He puts God's people ahead of himself. And then in this response too, did you notice he puts the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ahead of himself. He says, if you do this, you're, you're breaking your promise. And then thirdly, he puts the reputation of God before the nations ahead of himself. This is a glorious intercession for Moses. Moses sees that by doing this, the nations would see something. And so Moses asks God, he intercedes for Israel. And it's a beautiful, and I'll say it, sacrificial intercession because he puts others and other things before himself. He puts God's glory and reputation before himself. He puts God's people before himself. And if this is true of Moses, how much true is it of Jesus, the greater Moses? In the garden, Jesus prays for his people. He intercedes for us sinners. On the cross, Jesus prays, they know not what they do. And even now on the throne, Jesus intercedes for us by name. When we chase shallow idols, God the Son is praying for you by your name. 
He's not on the mountain of Sinai. He's at God's right hand. And last of all, we see in this passage that idolatry demands atonement. Later in verse 30, Moses says, I want you to look, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. See, Moses recognized that this rank idolatry, it required atonement. Atonement is an old word that means at one with God. How can we be at one with God when we are his enemies as idolaters? With Moses, he says, perhaps, perhaps I can do something. But with Jesus, the greater Moses, there is a certainty. Only Jesus, who is without sin, could offer atonement, could make enemies of God, friends with God. Psalm 106, which I'd recommend you look into maybe this week as a way of devotion, says that in this moment, Moses stood in the breach for Israel. Psalm 106, which is a songbook of Israel, as, as God's people gathered, they opened this uh, scroll and they sang these songs, often had them memorized, and they sang about this event. And what did, they, what did they sing about? They sang about the reality that Moses stood in the breach for Israel. Now, that's a military image uh, for when there's a gap open in your fortification from your, from your enemies' uh, guns and all kinds of things. And what you do when you breach the gap is you stand in that space. And as you stand in that space, you are in the most vulnerable place. You're bearing the brunt of attack for the sake of those behind you. That's what Moses does here, and that's what Jesus does on the cross. He takes the hit for you. Your idolatry demands judgment. It just does. Jesus stands in the breach, receives the penalty himself. He intercedes for you even now. What does that mean for you? Well, your reactivity in this season cannot condemn you. You're reverting cannot condemn you. Friends, your recasting God in your own image cannot even condemn you if you are in Christ. But God is not content to leave you there. See, God is too good. He doesn't just leave you in this space. This passage, God himself is calling you to something better. It's not reactivity. It's not reverting. It's not recasting. What is it? It's remembering Psalm 106, I just referred to it. Psalm 106, 21 says, Israel's problem at Sinai ultimately was forgetting. Verse 21 says, I'm quoting, they forgot the God who saved them. This means to have tenacious faith in this tumultuous time is to recognize the temptations that we just walked through, to repent of them. But ultimately, to be tenacious is to be a remembering people. It's to remember. It's to remember Jesus who stood in the breach for you. What do we do while we wait? This is a waiting time, waiting on God, waiting for bad times to pass, waiting for whatever it is that you long for. May you remember. Remember God's love. Remember God's saving actions in Jesus. Let's remember Jesus as we wait. Lord, we do that now. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed make us a remembering people. We, we so easily forget. Lord, may the waiting church be a remembering church. Would hope as we wait on the plains of Sinai, remember the cross every day, every moment. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.